You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It really is uh, my great honor to uh, have uh, John Guest with us and his wife Kathy. She's, where, where'd she go? Oh, there she is, over there. Uh, they've come all the way down uh, from Pittsburgh to the Pittsburgh of the South, um, and uh, to Birmingham. And uh, John will be preaching uh, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and, but this is not his uh, first trip uh, to Birmingham. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, we can talk a little bit about evangelism today and about your ministry and what you're up to. I, I want us to get to Urban Impact and talk about you and Ed Glover working in Pittsburgh. Uh, but before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that um, we really are a family. And uh, though uh, far away, uh, you have brothers and sisters for us all around the world. And so we thank you for bringing the guests to us today, or that you would uh, speak through John powerfully this week, that eyes of hearts would be open uh, to who you are, uh, and that they might turn to you. And Lord, be with us in uh, our midst this morning uh, that uh, you would do a great work in our lives and that this day we might uh, see Jesus uh, more beautiful and more amazing than ever. In Jesus' name Amen. we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, brother, tell us who you are. Brother. That's what I am. I'm a brother to you. That's right. Do you know how fortunate you are to have this man as your preacher here? Huh? Do you know that? Every... Wow. That's, that's another $20 in John's cup. <laughs> Up it. <laughs> um, born and raised in England, in an irreligious family, in Oxford, in 1936, my father committed suicide when I was seven years of age left my mother with three boys, of which I was the oldest, and uh, grew up without a praying in the house, no Bible. We never went to church as a family. I don't know how much to tell you right now, but when I hit adolescence, I was asking questions about where is all this headed? In fact, I remember asking, why am I going to school? I was walking home from school. <laughs> a strange question for a kid to ask, but I thought, why are you going to school, Guest? They always called us by our last name in those days in school, just Guest, or I was Guesty. And I said, well, I'm going to school to get uh, a good education. Well, why do you want a good education? So th this was all in a split second in my head. Why do you want a good education? so that you can get a good job. Well, why do you want a good job? So you can earn good money. Why do you want good money? So that you can live comfortably. And I said to myself, and that's it? There has to be more. I was about 14 when that flow of thought went through my head, which led me on. I ran into a chap just as you were preaching another chap who was not that competent. 
but he was confident about what he believed, and he started talking to me about it. And that got me into a conversation. And from that man, Ray Wilson, in Oxford, I would say this. No one, after all the years of education, whatever else I've done and whoever else I have heard speak, has added to the gospel that that shy man shared with me. And I remember after I was in seminary, I'd moved away from Oxford to London, was training to be an engineer, etc. I won't, this is going to get too long, but when I came to faith, I wrote Ray Wilson back in Oxford, I was living in London, and said, guess where I am? And I don't know whether he could have ever guessed it, but I was in theological college training for the ministry. So, was ordained when, in 1961, and I've been preaching the gospel before that, but certainly ever since that. That's a little bit of who I am. Married to Kathleen, this is very big. Ooh. I'd be nowhere without her. She is amazing. And we have four daughters, all American, who spend American money. <laughs> it says a lot right just there. But it says something that you have only girls. Um, I have only girls, if you remember. Um, so, yes. Well, uh, the other thing that everybody's wondering is... Um, at what point did you actually find the Holy Grail to preserve your youth? Um, <clears throat> I mean, you've really ne- you, you and Kathleen have never stopped. You, you've, just, you've just kept going. And I guess the, the, what I've heard from people who are like you is that you retire from the pastorate, but you never retire from gospel ministry. Never. Yeah. Never. Never. I'm still living pretty much flat out. And I'm 81, just in case you haven't done the math. So, so I'm just going for it. Amen. And so you, uh, you eventually became the rectors of St. Saint, uh, Stephen Sewickley. Yes. And, uh, and tell us a little bit about what your ministry was there in, in Sewickley. Tell us a little bit what Sewickley is like and, and what, uh, what marked your ministry out there, because it's, it's interesting. Very. <laughs> I don't know how honest to be with you to tell you the truth, but I'll tell you this. This looks like Sir Wickley. Mm. Uh, the steel barons lived in Sir Wickley. So in my congregation were the Joneses of Jones and Lachlan, uh, people who were founders of what became U.S. Steel, because there are a number of steel companies that combined. And I remember going to see Mrs. Schoonmaker, who was one of the found... Her husband was one of the founding members of what was U.S. Steel. I was actually going to ask her for some money for a friend of mine who was doing ministry in Pittsburgh. So I went into Mrs. Schoonmaker, who I barely knew, but I knew she was rich. 
And I was the young minister. I became the rector of, I don't know how old you are, because you look like a lad. <laughs> I asked Kathleen what moisturizer you used, and I started using it. <laughs> uh, but I was 35 when I became the rector of St. Stephen's. And I had, I'd come out of a rock and roll scene. I had a band. And it doesn't add up to look at you and they call me to be their rector. And that is like another miracle. But when they called me to be the rector of St. Stephen's, it was in the middle of the upheaval on college campuses with the students for a democratic society, the SDS, the Weathermen, the Panthers, Black Panthers. And uh, my band looked radical. But we were talking about Jesus in amongst what we were doing. And the kids of that parish were on their way to who knows where because the drug scene had hit in Sewickley and on the college campuses. There was all this upheaval. I was the youth minister on a part-time basis at the parish when the kids were killed at Kent State, some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but students were shot dead by National Guard soldiers of Kent State University in Ohio. And we had been there with my band about a month before, maybe. We were at Cornell University performing when it happened. Students went on strike. Students came back home. My rector, an older gentleman, I was his, like, boy assistant, said, one of his assistants, said, gather the students and talk to them about what's ever's happened. And I remember gathering them. Well, along the way, a lot of those students came to faith. It was quite remarkable. And young adults coming back into the community from around and about were coming to a living faith in Jesus because Kathy and I were just sort of hanging out with them. We had a house down in the village, and they hung out with us. And when they were looking for a new rector, the older man retired. I tried to talk him out of it because he was such a great foil for me to do my thing behind. He gave credibility to what I was about. They called me to be the rector. And what I inherited was the traditional, well-heeled, semi-soft, liberal, Episcopal church. That's what I inherited. That's what was there of which I became the rector. But scattered amongst that congregation by then were a smattering of people who were very enthusiastic about their relationship to the Lord. And so we began to train, teach, lead, preach to. It was so refreshing to hear you preach this morning. Straight out of God's word, straight at us not muddling around in tepid streams. (laughs) 
there's so many ways to describe what the problem was, but it was not good. And uh, that launched a, a series of ministries, what happened in that parish. You had a little saying, um, you probably still use it, uh, pastor the passive and move with the movers. Yes. And so you... I put it the other way around. The other way around, move with the movers. Move, move with the movers. But pastor the passive. Yes. Because you had to, it was, you wanted to be pastoral to those who were, praise God, sitting in church, uh, but, but you went, underwent literally a door to door, parish wide evangelism campaign within St. Stephen's Sewickley. I did. I, my first declaration that I remember from the pulpit about a strategy was, I want to visit with all of you and get to know who you are. So I started with the A's and went down the directory and would call up and say, your turn, I'm coming to see you. Uh, so that, even in that, I thought, well, I don't want to just go and kiss the babies or pat little old ladies on the head. I want to leave something of consequence behind. So, for instance, when I visited Mrs. Schoonmaker, I, I left that behind, that little conversation. I, I went in, and we had tea set up. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and the servant came in and set tea out, and we sat there. I said, well, so she said, what do you want? <laughs> so I, she was very straight ahead. I said, well, I've got something to give you and something to ask of you. <laughs> she said, well... What is it you want first? <laughs> so I said, I need some money for a friend of mine who's doing ministry down in Pittsburgh with young people. And so we talked about that, but she never asked me what it was I had to give. So I said to her, you haven't asked me what it is I want to give you. So she said, well, what's that? I said, the gift of eternal life. And it was very quiet. <laughs> and I told her about a relationship with Jesus. And I said, I, you, could, you can actually, I, so give me five or ten minutes later, I said, you know, you can actually pray and ask Jesus to come into your life. Would you like to do that? And dear Mrs. Schoonmaker said, I would. So I prayed with her. And she asked Jesus to come into her life. And it wasn't too long after that that I conducted her funeral. And I mentioned what I just told you. Not in detail, but that she had asked Jesus into her life. And her nurse came up to me and she said, that is the lady who saw her off from this world. She said, that was so good to hear. Mm. She said, I knew something had happened, but thank you. Mm. Parish, go around a parish and pass on good news that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, and stuff happens. Mm. And two things happened. <laughs> Fierce resistance from those who thought, this is not my traditional Episcopalianism, and a kind of joyful acceptance on the other. And the joyful acceptance won the day. It was, uh, it's been said that 
you grew uh, two churches in Swickley, St. Stephen's and the Presbyterian Church of Swickley. Um, no one got the joke, but that's true. So, so those who were, some of those who were disgruntled did move on uh, and, and, and went, went elsewhere. Yes, some of them actually went down to the cathedral. Oh, Trinidad, yeah. yes. But you, uh, you also had a real ministry to raising up uh, young men. So at one point in time, you had as your associates uh, John Yates and John Howe. Of course, John Yates would go on to be the rector of the Falls Church, and uh, John Howe would go on to be the rector of Truro Church and then Bishop of Central Florida. What, what did your interaction with them look like? Um, well, they were young men. John Yates had come to me from the cathedral in Columbia, South Carolina, Trinity Cathedral there. He'd been the assistant with the dean, Jim Sterling. He came to me from there with his wife. They were southern, and I needed them desperately. They were charming and sweet and delightful, like you southern people are. I mean, they brought all that southern charm up into Yankee land. <laughs> charm, because I was... Uh, I'd made a lot of enemies. <laughs> uh, so, the, And then John Howe was a chaplain at a prep school, Miss Porter's school, up in New England. And I, back in my earlier traveling days with the guitar, I'd done a little concert up at Miss Porter's school for the girls there. And John Howe was the chaplain, so that got us a friendship. These were riotous days, because I was driving hard, and uh, they joined me in the drive. John Howe the first four years, uh, John Yates the second four years, and then uh, Mike Henning, Mike Henning, who was the next half dozen years or so, and uh, then another chap by the name of Stu Baymig. Mm. Mm. And the emphasis on evangelism at St. Stephen's, Anglicanism, especially latter 20th century Anglicanism and modern Anglicanism today, evangelism is, is, is not a word that, that is in the forefront. And even when it is, you start asking about what you mean by evangelism and what they talk about is not evangelism at all. Um, it's more service-oriented, being nice to people, outreach. expressions, yeah, outreach. So talk to us a little bit about the desperate need for evangelism today as ever uh, and uh, encourage us in that. Well, the word is a scary word for most people anyway, evangelism, evangelist, evangelical. So I tended not, I didn't use, you're using the word very freely here. I didn't use the, I was careful in my use of the word because I wanted to get to the message and not get people all scared mm. that I'm some frantic, fanatical flamethrower. But they came to know that eventually. <laughs> <laughs> So, for instance, we called our evangelism training basic leadership training, BLT, basic leadership training. Because the basic leadership training that anybody needs in any ministry, whether it's Sunday school teacher, being on a vestry, uh, it doesn't matter what, is the gospel. And we picked up on a, a 
training tool from Florida at uh, First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale, Coral Ridge Presbyterian, mm -hmm. a chap by the name of D. James Kennedy, who has since gone on to glory, that he developed a kind of a question and answer uh, relationship with very old remarkable thing, the Presbyterians teaching the Episcopalians how to evangelize. Uh, that's remarkable. He, he was spectacular. He didn't mess around. Uh, I, I don't know quite which way to go, but that was the that was the thrust. Here's the first question. I'll just stand up to ask this question. Before I go to that, let me tell you, a wonderful woman came into our church, a lawyer, and a husband who was uh, some business genius. And we were talking with them about their background. And she said, when I came to know faith, I was on my way out of my marriage. She said, and I was like a women's libber. And it was all about my career. I was a lawyer. I was flying back into the USA from Europe. And this chap sat beside me on the plane and... He asked me a few questions and then got into a talk about the faith. And before we got off the plane in the USA, I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my life. I said, who was that man? She said he was a Presbyterian minister from Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> D. James Kennedy. First question is this. Have you come to a place in your life where you know for sure that if you were to die tonight, heaven is your home? Diagnostic question number one. Some of you are asking yourself that question right now. Irrespective of what the answer is, the second question is, if you were to come before God right now, and he should say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? And by and large, the answer is, I'm giving it my best shot. I'm trying to be a good husband or a good wife. I'm going to church. I'm trying to raise my kids right. Whatever the answer is. Response. Well, I've got some really good news for you. Heaven is a free gift and it cannot be earned or deserved. So I say, I was as an adolescent. But the problem is, us. So then you get into sin, and then Jesus coming to take the sin, and resurrecting from the dead so he's alive and you can ask him into your life. I really short-circuited it. but I, got, I was going down the list. I get to the Crocs. In my parish, St. Stephen's, C-R-O-C-K, Croc, that was the last name. My secretary called up to make the appointment. She called her husband at work and said, guess who's coming after lunch today? She said, our new rector. So dad at work, her husband at work, said, I'd like to meet him too. 
So they'd had a party at their home that night, so she said, well, bring some new candles home with you. So he went shopping, came, they sort of furbished, refurbished up the, the area. So we sit down, so, and he is a straight, he looked English. He had a way of looking that was very conservative, and he looked very English, sort of middle-aged. Bob, his wife was Marnie. Before we were done that day, they had knelt with me in what they called their beehive room. The beehive room, they had a stained glass window that was a beehive in that room and asked Jesus into their life, both of them. I was staggered when I said, would you like to receive the gift of eternal life? And they both said, yes, please. So I said, well, this is what we do. So we knelt and prayed. Later I found out they didn't say a word to each other for another 24 hours. Died of a heart attack in about another half a dozen or eight years, very suddenly. But I can tell you this, he got more done in those half dozen years for the Lord Jesus than most of the people who'd been forever going to church and doing whatever they do. And uh, old daughter who slept through all this, they put her to bed and she slept, which they said was a miracle, <laughs> is married to a minister and heavily committed to the Lord with her husband in downtown Pittsburgh mm. amongst the college students there. Mm. Well, you ended up leaving uh, the rector's position at St. Stephen's to take up uh, a full-time ministry of evangelism and you even came to Birmingham, Breakthrough 92. Yes. Uh, and how many, how many remember that or were a part of that? Raise your hand. So, Hi, yeah. put them right up. That's right. So the chair, as, correct you. me if I'm wrong, the co-chairs for that were Glenn Ireland, Mally's daddy, and Houston Blunt uh, was active and involved in that, Francis's husband. Is that right? Actually, it's Beverly. Oh, Beverly. Oh, there you go. Yeah, very good. So um, he probably did nothing for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, but I, I want to tell us a little bit about that ministry, and if some of y'all that were a part of it would like to share uh, some of your experiences from that, what was it, and, and what were you up to? Well, I came with a black speaker. The idea was to have good news in black and white. The mayor of the town in those days was African-American. I forget his name, but he was the mayor. And uh, I came with a guy by the name of Joseph Jennings and some other friends. There was an African-American guy who was a chaplain at the university who played football for the university in those days. And we brought a radical skateboarder from the West Coast who even had a move on the skateboard that was named after him. And we built on the platform of the arena, I forget which arena it was, a skateboard, half pipe. So what, this guy came and did skateboarding and sort of wowed them. And we had popular music that sounded popular but was about Jesus. We, didn't, we were not playing church. You got that picture. 
But Joseph Jennings was stunning. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. He was really the prime star. And he went round all the schools, especially the city schools, along with other speakers to different schools and invited the community to that arena. What, which, what was the name of the arena? Okay. So, which was, I don't know, see about 10,000 or so? There are, I would have to guess about four or 5,000 kids packed into the lower levels of that arena. May have been more, but I'd be conservative. On a night when it snowed in Birmingham, Alabama, in fact, we had to get down to the arena and we drove on the interstate through the barriers they put up to stop people driving on it. There wasn't another soul on the interstate because we just had to get downtown or whatever the main road was. It was Actually, that Sunday morning, nobody went to church. They shut down the churches. And uh, we had a little communion service in Houston and Francis Blunt's house. And one of the singers is here this morning, Mally Ireland. Oh. Not Mally. Do they all know you? Come stand up. No, nobody knows Mally. <laughs> anyway, Mally sang. And then another guy by the name of Charles Billingsley, who's mm. now a superstar, who had just he was still in university in those days. That was our little service. But when Joseph Jennings spoke down in the arena and asked kids to come forward, they poured forward. And what we offered them, there were so many, primarily African-American kids. We offered them a friend. I mean, we could, there was no way we could cope with the response. I'm talking about hundreds Billy Graham style, had come down to the front of the arena. So we said, if you come back next Sunday to, we called the place, we, we made up our, I don't know how, this got organized on the spot, but we said, we will give you the gift of an adult friend. And hundreds of kids turned up the next week on Sunday Afternoon, it was Super Bowl day, so there you go, it's the, right early in February. And one of the superstars amongst the lads, excuse me, the young adults who helped in those days was a guy who's fairly big in this town nowadays called Kirby Sevilla. It would be, it would be great to get him into the class one of these days. Mm. I don't know where he goes. Does he go to this church? Well, he took on two or three of those kids. And I recently got a photograph from him of him as the best man at the marriage of one of these lads who'd grown up to be a man, who he'd sort of mentored all the way through his adolescence. It's very moving to say that. I think the, the testimony of of um, understanding that God doesn't have grandchildren and he has sons and daughters and for each successive generation to, uh, to evangelize the next and, and to press on and 
Uh, and yet at the same time, it's such an encouragement to hear of your ministry, especially uh, what happened in Breakthrough 92 and the fruit that that... Uh, 25 years ago last year. Isn't that stunning? You add the years. Questions, comments uh, for the Reverend John Guest? Billy. Your personal visit your personal visits to all your parishioners, how many visits were there or how many parishioners did you have to see and how long did it take you? I've lost track. I'm too good. Just trying to give you some respect. Yes, thank you, Billy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but to tell you the truth, I just try to visit the people I don't think are converted. Uh, so I think it was... Uh, it would have to be somewhere close to between three and 500 families. Mm-hmm. With an average attendance, the Sunday mornings back then, of maybe 250, rarely ever more than 300, at three services, 8 o'clock communion, 9.15, they called Sermon in the Round, I inherited and then the 11 o'clock primary service, as it was in those days. Do you remember your hardest nut to crack and how long that took? Well, I'll tell you, they had a nine-person vestry. And for me to become the rector, the bylaws said that they had to have a two-thirds majority, yay, for me to become the new rector to become the new rector. And the nine-person count was six to three. My first week in the office, three of those guys came into the office, one at a time, and said they're resigning because they voted no. One was the senior vice president with Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America. He's gone on to be with Jesus, so I'll tell you his name. It was Lou Favorite. And I said, directly to him, like, God, God was in this. Because I'm just a young chap who's, I've never run a parish. I've been an assistant in a parish, three different parishes. But I was hanging out with college students and confronting radicals on college campuses and being confronted. So I was one who voted no. And I said to him, Lou, that is not fair. You've got to give me a chance. You can't just resign. So he didn't. And he became one fabulous junior warden for me down the road. Another guy, he's gone home to be with Jesus, Tom Pangburn. He had an executive position with a steel company. He came in and said he'd voted no and he was resigning. I said the same thing to him. So he didn't. And several years, he was, the tough nut was number three, John Hutchinson. Isn't that amazing? After all these years, it's 50 years ago. Was it not 50? Not quite 50, but good ride. I said that same to him. He said, I, I know what you're about. I know where you're coming from. I don't want any part of it. I'm out of here. 
and he was, and I never got to him. He was the hardest nut. But the second one, Tom Pangburn, years afterwards, he met me in the cloister of the church, and he came up to me and said, John, he said, I was wrong. And he wept. He said, I was wrong. Because he'd come to a living faith. By then, had come to a living faith. They didn't go away. They stayed in the church. They stayed a part of things. And I was never, ever, by the grace of God, uh, sort of retaliatory to anybody who came against me. We just love them all the more. Uh, so those were the three. Yes. I was just curious if your own family ever came to find the Lord. Yes, thank you. I had uh, three brothers. One is coming to visit this June from Australia. I've been trying to get him over here. He emigrated to Australia. I went to visit him a couple of years ago to give him one more shot of finding Jesus. And uh, I don't think we're there yet. But my next-to-me brother, Tony, came to a real faith, like radical. He'd become very successful in business in London, had moved out to a very nice suburb called Buckhurst Hill, just outside London, and had this big house that they just moved into. They visited with us in the USA. He heard me preach. And that was the one time in my life I preached to one person, and that was my brother. And he said he had prayed to ask Christ into his life in the church. Philip's New Testament to go home with. That's a modern translation of the New Testament. They're in their new house. His wife, they, oh, and he said, he's a big, strong, he made me feel diminutive. He was so ripped. He said to his wife, we need to go to the local church to get to know our neighbors. Having lunch, the kids are playing on the carpet in front of the fireplace, and Tony hears God speak. Jesus is my son and your savior. He told me years later, he said it was 18 months apart in age, so he was in his 40s at that point. He said, I went upstairs and knelt by my bed. He wrote me a letter and wept for the wasted years. Because that's what it all looked like. Her own home, added to what was already a large home, started taking in foster kids. He went one night a week down to a drunk mission in East London and spent all night with the alcoholics who were coming in off the street. Then he got involved in a witnessing team, going around to other parishes and places, talking about his faith. 
that was number two. So he was the first one to really come. My mother came. Was already ordained. She had emigrated to Australia. That's how these other brothers got. There are two brothers still there. She came on home to England. I was in Bristol, England as a, as a curate. And an, an English evangelist by the name of Eric Hutchings came to Bristol. We hired the local concert hall, the Colston Hall, we being the churches. I was involved in leadership in that at that point. And when the people came forward, it was my job to pair up with whomever came forward a likely counselor or somebody to visit with them. And three or four nights into that, I'm standing at the center aisle in this beautiful orchestral concert hall. And people are coming forward. Walking down the center aisle where I was standing came my mother into my arms. Just embraced me. That was number two. My brother Tony and then my mother. Others in Australia who are still issues. And one of them is coming to visit in June. And I think his days must be numbered. <laughs> uh, so thank you for asking that. Well, I hope that y'all will, uh, will come and, and bring uh, a friend along uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to the Lenten Preaching Series. Uh, let's have a quick prayer, because uh, uh, we've got 11 o'clock to get to as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing John and Kathy to us uh, for their life and witness. And Lord, uh, keep us from discouragement as we say, well... Um, Certainly they have a giftedness, but Lord, above all, we know that it is you by the power of your Holy Spirit yes, that converts Lord. Yes, hearts. Lord. Yes. So Lord, that, you would be, that we would be faithful uh, and that the success would be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.